0: Oh, and welcome to COS Live. You can watch the original video broadcast live on Tuesdays at 6pm Eastern. Visit conventionofstates.com pod to learn more. And now, here's COS Live. Well, hello, COS supporters, and welcome back to another edition of COS Live. My name is Andrew Lush. I will be your host for this program. Of course, I am joined by my co-host, Rita Peters, who's also the Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs. Rita, it's a pleasure to be back with you. How are you doing?
1: I'm happy to be with you. And as always, Andrew, we would love to see which states people are tuning in from. So if you're watching right now, why don't you just drop us a note there in the comments section and tell us where you're from.
0: Yes. And then please also send out a share, a retweet, a rumble, wherever you're tuning in from. Help us grow the program and help tell more patriots about this amazing solution that we have within Article 5. Uh, It's a convention of states. It empowers we, the people, to call a convention, and we can use it to rein in an out-of-control federal government. So please make sure that you're sharing this wide and far. Today we have a special edition of the program. It's been 21 years since the evil terrorist attack on 9-11, but it was an event that uh, revealed the best of America. Everyday heroes put their lives on the line and sometimes gave their lives to help others There were victims, people who were permanently scarred. We want to talk to one man today who not only overcame life-threatening injuries on 9-11, but has gone on to do extraordinary things to fight for freedom in America. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming State Senator Birdwell from Texas onto the program. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Birdwell is a native Texan and decorated military veteran representing Texas Senate District 22. As an officer in the U.S. Army, he served a 20-year career with numerous training deployments and two operational deployments. In 1990, he deployed to Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, where he was awarded the Bronze Star. It's a privilege to have you with us, Senator Birdwell. Uh, The first thing that I'd like to jump into is uh, this Sunday is going to mark the 21st anniversary of September 11th. everyone who was old enough to to see the images coming in on that day they remember exactly where they were they exact they remembered the where they were standing what what they were doing and it was just such a shocking horrifying moment for the entire country um so for those who may not be familiar with your story can you just kind of go through the experience of that day just kind of through your own eyes
2: yeah, that, that that could be a long answer, Andrew. So I'll uh, I'll try to keep it short. But ultimately, the Lord's been gracious, and 21 years later, I'm still here when I really shouldn't be. Um, I was working that morning. Uh, again, I was I was an active duty, as you mentioned, Lieutenant Colonel. I was the military aide to a flag officer in, uh, inside the building, and so uh, we had an E-ring office um, that day. Both our our uniform principal and our our SES, Senior Executive Service Deputy, that's a civilian flag officer. Um, we're out of the building with my uh, with my tag team partner, Colonel Williams, over at the Double Tree. So, myself, Sandy, and Cheryl settled in for what we thought was going to be a slow day with the, the flag officers out of the building. You know, we would be able to get the, some nug work done. About nine o'clock, Sandy gets a call from her daughter, Sam, up in New York. And that's how the day began to unfold. Um, Sandy's daughter Sam lives up in New York City told her mom turn the TV on and just like you and and Andrew you look young enough that you know you may have been in you know pre-k uh 21 years ago Uh, (laughs) so um but uh just like everybody else around the country wherever you were whether it was you know the commute on the east coast waking up eating breakfast in central time you know and, and mountain pacific and all that uh, the different time zones of what people are doing, the TV, radio, whatever it may be. We went into Miss Minning's office. My boss, um, the SES turned on the TV, saw that, you know, the North Tower. And and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, on live TV, saw the second crash of Flight 175. And that would confirm that the, the first was no accident. This was not a normal day in our nation's life. No thought that we were next. Um, about 9.35, I stepped out to go to the men's restroom because the, my morning Coke I'd had that morning. And when I walked through, uh, stepped out of the office to go to the men's restroom, I walked through that portion of the Pentagon that crumbles, that's impacted by the aircraft and 27 minutes later collapses. I walked through that. So my window is just four windows over where my desk was from where the plane makes impact. The window I'm in fact behind is just on the right-hand side of what collapses because I came out of the men's restroom and I'm about to turn and walk back through what had collapsed. Um, and so I'm 15 to 20 yards from an 80 ton jet coming through the building at 530 miles an hour with 3000 gallons of jet fuel. And by the Lord's grace, um, you know, I, I didn't survive it because the army made me a tough guy, the toughest man to ever walk this earth 2000 years ago, who sits at the right hand of the father, still is in charge. Um, we may not always acknowledge it, but he is still in charge. And so uh, 20 years later, four years of medical care, and, you know, I get to see my my grandkids and my son get married and, and uh, you know, see the grandkids come along. In fact, one of my second grandchild's uh, third birthday was this past weekend. No matter our maladies, Andrew, no matter the challenges we face in this country and the difficulties we have with proper role and function of the government and what policy should be and what it shouldn't be, and what level of government should be making the policy decisions. This is still the greatest place on God's earth to live and grow up uh, and still consider ourselves citizens of this great nation. So uh, here we are. And uh, the the Lord had other things for me to do, which included uh, working on the convention of state stuff uh, when uh, when it came before us in Texas in 2017 and, and we're still working it here, so. I hope that was brief.
1: <laughs> well, it's been 21 years since the horror of that day. What do you think Americans should do in approaching the memory of that event?
2: Mel and I, uh, I'll tell you what Mel and I do, um, uh, Rita. Mel and I are always together that day because the the real difficulty is like, you know, the soldier that's deployed in theater, spouse doesn't know what's happening that day. You know, and Mel and I were only 25, 30 miles apart, but it's the not knowing. So all those families in New York, you know, the families that don't know, you know, exactly which flight their loved one's on that crashes into Pennsylvania, Flight 93, the numbers of people in the building, the numbers of people on the aircraft. So Mel and I are always together that day to honor the Lord's grace in, uh, in allowing me the opportunity to, to continue to, to, uh, to stay here on earth. The other thing that we do is we put a uh, large American flag out. We've got a 17 foot flagpole out in front of our house and we normally have a three by five, but on September 11th, July 4th, Memorial day and veterans day, we put out a, a six by 10 American flag and uh, we put it at half mast and um, just to remember. It's not just remembering the lives lost that day. It's remembering that our nation is hated by certain entities and elements around this world that that believe in evil and do not believe in the right of self-governance and representative republic. We wanna remember why evil hates this country, why authoritarian regimes don't like this country, why we're still blessed by God, and then remember those lives that were lost and those that were injured, not just on September 11th, but every young man or woman that deployed to Afghanistan, deployed to Iraq, deployed to Djibouti, deployed to the Philippines, to fight in what was at the time was called the war on terror. Uh, I don't hear that term very often these days now, Rita, but, but remember all those folks. And look, there there will come a point And let's let's be honest with ourselves, there will come a point that September 11th will be a lot like December 7th, in that immediately after December 7th, the intensity of that day, the three and a half, almost four years of our participation in World War II, but over time, the generation that lived it and fought it eventually deceases. And while on, you know, I always remember what December 7th is, but that intensity and that emotion will wane. Mm. Uh, It's impossible to to maintain the intensity of that day 60 years, 70 years later, because most of people live 70 years from now will not have lived that day. But we always want to remember the nature of sacrifice. And how great this country is, no matter our maladies that we're currently enduring. Uh, Remember what a great nation this is, what we stand for, the moral clarity for which we stand and why people hate us. uh, And the response of the American people when when attacked uh, is immense. You know, for those of us in the military, it's not just life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of all who threaten it. (laughs) So...
0: (laughs) So Senator, you are a veteran of the Gulf War and you survived 9-11. Take us through why you decided to run for office in the Texas Senate. Uh, what led you to do that and why do you continue to serve today?
2: Well, I, I wanted to be that guy that that you know served in the military for 30 years, buys the RV and drives around the country uh, to go see the country that you love. Um, certainly my, my career path took a dramatic turn uh, uh, September 11th, and my physical ability to continue to serve was, was uh, greatly diminished. Uh, thus, that's why I, I got got to retirement and retired. Um, you know, I, I was always very politically aware in the sense of, you know, policies and who to vote for and, and the things that I would oppose or support uh, in the candidates that I saw, but I never was politically active, if I can make that bifurcation. I um, uh, moved back to Texas because uh, when I was done medically, um, I was now able to return back to my home state. Um, and now in a retired status, I could be more engaged in, in the political process, had no thought that I would be a, a candidate for office, ever wanted to do that, you know, because nobody wants to, to sign up for that beating, that rectal exam, whatever you want to call it. Um, Yeah, it's, well, it's true. I mean, there's an entire cottage industry out there of people that want to tell you how much you suck when you're, you know, a first-time candidate. Um, But I had, like Patrick Henry or others, uh, George Mason, other, like in, in Virginia, the best leaders are not necessarily those that come forward and say, here I am, but those that are asked to be because other citizens see that potential in you. So our my predecessor, Senator Abert announced his resignation for health reasons, which created a special election. and I had people from throughout the district encourage me to uh, to run. And first and foremost, it's it's got to be right based on what the Lord puts on your heart. Um, while Mel doesn't get to veto, my wife Mel doesn't get to veto uh, what the Lord wants. Uh, she's got a pretty hefty caucus with the Lord as it relates to, uh, you know, is this really what we want to do? Um, and, and it, it felt right with the Lord. We stepped forward in faith, uh, campaigns are hard. It was a short time frame because it was a special election. Um, and, uh, and we prevailed and I've had the privilege and honor of serving the people of this district now for 11 years, almost 12 now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Uh, it's been a real treat. So I always wasn't engaged, but never thought I would be that person that steps out and and is the candidate. But um, the Lord's blessed that too. And so uh, Mm -hmm. we're continuing to serve and and get the opportunity. We're up for re-election again within a redistricting year. So uh, I look forward to having the opportunity to, to again serve the people of Senate District 22 in the state Senate.
1: Well, we're so glad you are where you are doing what you're doing. And back in 2017, Texas became the 11th state to pass the convention of states application. We're up to 19 states now, but you were number 11 and you were our champion in the Texas Senate. So tell us a little bit about your decision to champion convention of states in Texas. What led you to do that?
2: Well, the, if if it's all right to use the, the military analogy, it's mission analysis. Um, initially, you know, because there there's always been this fear. Um, look, good good people, but had a fear of, do we do this? And to a great degree, I was in that camp. It's kind of like what Mark Levin said when he when he talked about a convention of states. As he was doing his research on Article Five, he was beginning his research from a negative perspective. Look, there's a lot of people out there that, that you know, in 2010, we're throwing around the word nullification. Um, you know, there are folks that will throw out the word secession. And I can certainly, you know, understand the sentiment because we're very frustrated with what we see in Washington. But anything you do must be lawful. I mean, that's without getting into the Biden administration or even the Obama administration at this point, you know, if we're going to have a... a a federal government or state or city counties you name it that don't feel an obligation to obey the law then we're not on the slope to anarchy we're on the cliff over to anarchy there must be a sense of obligation of obedience to the law and the only solution available to us I believe other than electing good people and look Trump, Reagan, Cruz, Mike Lee, there's there's a few more I could rattle off. Those guys come along once a quarter century. So the only way for the states to get control of what they created, the states created the federal government and gave it its mission. And without giving you a long historical diatribe, as I dug into this, it became clear that with the 17th Amendment that changed how we chose the senators. Prior to the the popular election of the senators by the citizens, the legislature chose the senators. Why did the founders set it up that way? They set it up that way because the state as a sovereign entity is the legislature's customer. I can tell you as a state legislator, Half of our budget is commandeered by the federal government through Medicaid, a bunch of other things. Whether it would be a Ted Cruz from Texas or pick a liberal state, very deep blue state with that Senator. Prior to the 17th amendment, the legislature's customer, the Senator's customer is legislature's ability, the state legislature's ability to decide for that state what is best, whether that's marriage, whether that's uh, most of what we're seeing with abortion, it's not what the decision should be. It's who should be doing the deciding. And after the 17th Amendment, with the senators being popularly elected, we functionally turn the Senate into the same thing the House is. And because of that, we now have an incredible over micromanagement of the states from Washington, D.C., and because of that century now, over a little over a century now of micromanagement from Washington, DC, this is the only, only mechanism that is lawful and constitutional for us, for the states to regain control of the monster that it did not intend to create, but that it has become so that the people of Texas decide what's best for Texas, rather than people that go to Washington, D.C. and decide this is how we're going to tell the states how they have to function. Clearly the Constitution sets the bounds for how the states function. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments from the the Civil War era Amendments, the 16th and 17th were the worst in my my view, the income tax and then changing how the senators are chosen. But we've got to have the ability to go in and whether it's fiscal responsibility, term limits. We ought to have a very rigorous discussion on term limits. And then third, regulatory reform, because too many things come out of the bureaucracy. Most recently, the the Supreme Court decision in the West Virginia case that said, if the EPA is going to regulate things, it must do so with congressional authorization, not Congress saying, go forth, EPA, and do whatever you want to go do. That's... Now we've got a, as, as people would call it, the deep state, the, legisl- or the the bureaucratic state. There is far too much decision-making power in Washington, D.C., when the states are fully capable of handling their own affairs without the constant adult supervision of Washington, D.C.
0: Hmm. Senator, Washington right now...
2: The- yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was going to say, Senator, right now, 19 states agree with exactly what you just said about reigning in the, the federal power and allowing Texas to be Texas, California to be California, or you know one of the, any one of these other states, that it needs to be a reordering of how we, of how power is distributed. And ultimately, convention states wants to get it back to what the founders envisioned. They want to put it. We want to put the federal government back in the constitutional box that the federal or that the founding fathers intended the, for the federal government to be in. So, like I said, 19 states agree with you. They have passed the COS resolution. We have 15 more states that need to pass the COS resolution. And then we can get to a convention uh, where we can start debating amendments to the Constitution that fit within the the three planks of our resolution, which is term limits for elected officials, fiscal responsibility, like some type of fiscal restraint amendment, and then reining in the jurisdiction of the federal government so you were just touching on a few different items but what what are some constitutional reforms that you'd like to see come out of a convention of states and is there a particular amendment idea that you think should be prioritized at a convention
2: uh, i think uh, uh i think there's two things when you mention term limits for elected officials i don't think it's just that it's term limits because look it's a double-edged sword Be careful what you ask for, but it ought to be term limits, not just for Congress. You know, how about for the FBI director? You know, there are uh, executive branch appointees that are not tethered to the president's term. Do we look at term limits there? The FBI director is one of those, particularly with most recent examples of over the last decade of FBI directors. I think there's a problem there. Um, but it, so it's not just executive branch, maybe it's judicial branch, you know, certainly the, the legislative branch. Now, as a legislator in a, I recognize the difficulty with term limits. And so we can have, that's why we ought to have a rigorous conversation. The other area that i worked when I, we did the, uh, the mock convention in Williamsburg when was that? In 16, I think it was. It was it, yes. it was the year before the 17 session. So it was in 16. The mock convention, the work group that I worked at, they broke us up into three work groups, and I worked on the regulatory reform one. Um, I think that is the one that is is most critical because it makes Congress vote. On anything that's going to affect the liberties of citizens from the regulatory state. You know, the, the pond in my backyard that's declared a wetland. You know, the, we, some type of accountability that makes Congress, because, and look, there are good people serving in Congress, um, but it makes Congress take a yes or no vote on something rather than saying it's their fault. And then the bureaucracy. If you look at what President Trump tried to do at the end of his, of his presidency, his this term, his first term, um, <laughs> if I may speak boldly for a moment, um, at the end of his first term, was trying to get some, some reforms to the federal bureaucracy where you can fire people. You know, look, I don't want people to get fired simply because they, they vote a certain way. You know, in all my years in the military, I was voting Republican but you know, I don't want to be kicked out of the military because I'm voting Republican, but you've got way too much authority in the bureaucracy that they can basically tell the president no and the president can't fire them. And so if the American people elect a president to impose their will upon that bureaucracy and Congress has put so many protections in place of the bureaucracy that even with a Republican president, he's already hindered. Um, because the institutional inertia of the federal bureaucracy is to go the liberal direction with more and more regulatory items. So, one of the things that we put in there was that Congress, the, the regulatory state may write rules, but if you don't approve it in 180 days, it's inactive. It doesn't go into effect. Right now, we've got a, the problem we have with, with regulatory agencies is, you know, with normal law, Congress passes a bill, the president can veto or sign it, and if he vetoes it, the Congress can then override it, meaning that the legislative branch is the bread in the sandwich, and the president is in between. Right now, with with the, the regulatory state as it is, the executive branch writes a rule, Congress could could say, nope, you're not gonna do that. Although it takes an immense number of people to, to voting wise to do that. And then if the Congress acts, the president could override it with a veto. So the sandwich is now the Congress in between the, elective, the, the executive branch, meaning the, I don't wanna say bureaucrats in the sense of, a, of as, a, as a slur, but the federal employees that write the rules and then the presidents at the other end So the executive has got the the legislative branch sandwiched rather than the legislature sandwiching the the president. Remember what Madison said in Federalist 58, the legislative branch must necessarily predominate because it is the most directly elected and representative of the people. And so we've got to get back to where the legislative branch is deciding what affects the people of the, the state of Texas, the state of Missouri, that's what we've got to get back to. And that's the one that I was most passionate about because right now we, the president of the United States is threatening and look, the word education is nowhere in the U S constitution, but we've got a department of education that is telling the States that if you don't let little Janie go into the gymnasium shower, you know, locker room of little Joni, because, you know, he thinks he's little, I mean, you know, okay, we'll lose our, our lunch money funding. If we don't I mean that's what Obama did. Trump stopped it. Now we're back at it again. And the the thirteen original states, and none of the other thirty-seven that joined the union after the original thirteen would have ever ratified the U.S. Constitution if that's what we thought federal power was supposed to look like. Okay, yeah. I know it's a rant, you know, but that's why you asked the question. <laughs> you- term limits, term limits, and and fiduciary yeah. items are are absolutely important. But I think that third one, that was why I was in that work group, the Mm -hmm. regulatory reform, because we've got too many people that have never been on the ballot deciding what the states are going to have to do.
1: I think you're right on. I don't we don't mind that rant at all. (laughs) Now you mentioned the 2016.
2: Yes. (laughs) Passion.
1: Yes. <laughs> you mentioned the 2016 Simulated Convention of States that we held in Williamsburg. And of course, you were one of the commissioners from Texas in attendance at that first ever simulated convention. Senator, I don't know if you've heard yet, but we are planning on holding another simulated convention of states next year with commissioners once again from all 50 states. So I wonder if you could just think back to that event for a moment, what it meant to you to be there, and do you think that a simulation is helpful for newer state legislators to understand the process.
2: Abs- Rita, absolutely. Let me tell you why. Look, I've been serving now for 11, uh, going on 12. My time in the state legislature is not indefinite. When we did the faithful delegate bill in 2017, which gave instructions that should you know, should the states be called for a convention? Because look, there's going to be those 16 states out there that aren't part of the call that Congress would say, hey, you need to come because 34 other states have said we want a convention. So we had to put something in place that whether it's our call that we signed up for or a call that, that we didn't sign up for, when Congress has to bring us in and say, you know, or announce the call and then we then we convene. By doing that, one of the things I put in that bill was that any delegate from the state and how we broke it up, if it's an—if the Congress says it's an even number of delegates from each state, you know, two, four, six, then it's an even split between the state Senate and the state house. But we said that the delegates must be a sitting member of the state legislature. They could not be a federal office holder, nor a former federal or state office holder. And the reason for that is if I'm going to a convention of states as a delegate, what's what and who is my customer? The ability of the state to make the decision. If I send a former congressman or a current congressman, my fear is, is that the federal government's freedom of maneuver will become their customer. My customer is the people of Texas's freedom of maneuver to decide what's best for Texas. If it always has to be, and somebody could change it at a future date, but if it has to be an active sitting member of the legislature, then by having that, what was that, six years ago now, there are new people in the legislature, and all the institutional knowledge that I have, whatever day the Lord decides that, hey, this is, you know, this phase of your life is going to end and you're going to do something else. Who's that next generation I'm going to train up? Remember what scripture says, train up a child as you should go and he's older as not depart from it. Okay. So whoever, you know, maybe I'm there next year, but do I bring younger people that will have more longevity in the, in, the, in the legislature? We've got some younger senators coming in, certainly some younger representatives coming in. Maybe I go help teach them, teach them, train them so that when this convention occurs, even if I'm not in the legislature, when that occurs, I've got somebody that I've had the opportunity to help shape mold perspective. Here's what's important because look, there's something else here too. When we did that, I know I'm going long Rita, I'm sorry, but I mean, I'm just passionate about this. One of the things that frustrates me to no end is as a body, not as individual Congressman, I've got some great great people that I shared territory with. But as a body, there's almost a contempt of the federal Congress against the states. It's as if we in the state legislatures are too stupid to be able to handle our roads, our education, all the, all, you know. And so when we met at the mock convention in Williamsburg in 2016, I met many other state legislators, from other states that were not necessarily red, we had a uh, in my work group we had a, a person from Vermont and from Rhode Island. You know, not bastions of, of you know, <laughs> but they see the same. You know, not bastions of bastions of conservatism. You know, like Texas, but but they see the same issue. It's not what the policy should be. It's who should be deciding the policy, and the only policies the federal government ought to be deciding are Article One, Section Eight, not. Everything that comes before us, you know, with every media event or whatever it might be. And so we had very thoughtful individuals looking at how we wrote amendments in our work groups. And then when we considered those amendments uh, on the floor as a body of a convention, amendments to the amendments, all the normal Roberts Rules of Order, parliamentary procedures, you know. Uh, calling the question, all the various things. These are learned people that are experienced and we're not the dummies that it seems that the federal Congress seems to think that the state legislatures are too stupid you know, to be able to handle their own affairs. Um, and then having that convention gave me a much better perspective. It forewarned me and forearmed me mm. so that when I stood on, this, on the Senate floor in 2017 and for four and a half hours, you know, defended the resolution and, de- and defended the, the procedures, I had a clear image of what a convention would look like from how we had done the mock convention, why we did the bills and the order that we did them. Um, so it's absolutely critical you do that because the legislators you had uh, six years ago, in fact, of, of our four um, that were there six years ago, two are already out of the legislature. So it's just myself and Phil King who's joining me in the state Senate. And so you've got to make sure that you keep this momentum and the training because I'm not getting any younger and we need other people to join me that, you know, we can go. Uh, And as soon as you know, the dates and locations, you got to put it out so that we can, because my schedule, my calendaring and all that, as a side note, uh, I need to know as soon as you know.
1: Okay. Will do. Stay (laughs) tuned.
2: Mm-hmm. So I know it was long,
1: but I'm getting passionate about it. So that's right. We love it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Senator Birdwell, it has just been inspiring to hear you speak, and I just love your passion and your dedication to the country. Uh, it's just it's so outstanding and uplifting. And so thank you so much for joining us on on COS Live, and thank you for uh, recounting you know your experience as a senator and your time in the military and the. Um, and 9-11 and the horrific event that that was, but also just how America was able to rise uh, above that and through the ashes, there was just so much unity, but it's great to have you on to talk about how we can restore America, save America through a convention, and we hope to have you back on. Thank you so much, Senator Burwell, it's been a pleasure.
2: Thank y'all, my blessing, y'all be blessed too. God bless y'all, be safe.
0: This has been the podcast version of COS Live. Check out more content at conventionestates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.